Welcome to Patterns of Care. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. This program focuses on breast cancer and reviews the results of our CME Group's most recent breast cancer survey, which was conducted in April 2007 with 150 randomly recruited U.S.-based medical oncologists in active clinical practice and 51 clinical investigators specializing in breast cancer. Dr. Cliff Huddis and Dr. Robert Carlson assisted us in designing the survey, and I met with these docs when we had the data to discuss the results. Dr. Carlson covered the findings in management of metastatic disease, and Dr. Huddis reviewed adjuvant therapy. And for our first interview, Cliff began by commenting on the choice of adjuvant endocrine therapy in postmenopausal women, where over the last few years we've documented with these surveys a progressive and major shift towards the use of upfront aromatase inhibitors rather than tamoxifen. Specifically, while AIs are the overwhelming usual upfront choice in postmenopausal women, with over 80% of both investigators and practicing oncologists using that approach in patients with node positive tumors, in smaller node negative tumors, about a quarter of investigators favored tamoxifen for two to three years, followed by an AI, while docs in practice utilize almost exclusively AIs in these patients. I asked Dr. Huddis what his answer was to the question of endocrine therapy in postmenopausal patients with smaller node-negative tumors. I said AI, and you know from historical interviews with me that when this first happened, I was more conservative. But I will explain my answer, why I go with the practitioners here. For me, when I'm giving adjuvant therapy right now, for better or worse, the conversation is about preventing recurrence and then death from breast cancer. And for most patients, especially the early days of a diagnosis and treatment, my experience is that that's their focal point as well. And when that's the case, in a narrow sense, the AI answers the question, what lowers the risk of recurrence most steeply? It may not be the overall best answer when you talk about health in general, but that's not the dominant issue for patients who are freshly diagnosed in my experience most of the time. Now, I will add, For the occasional patient who says, my friends have taken these drugs and they really felt lousy on them, I don't want to, I want to start with tamoxifen, here's where the data and the science give me some leeway. I don't think it's crazy to choose tamoxifen, and until we get big 198 for the sequence, we can't profess to know that it's better to start with the AI or not. Now, you say you don't think it's, quote, crazy to use tamoxifen, but we also have 7% of the medonks in practice, and maybe 10 or 12 people saying they would use tamoxifen for five years. Is that really a reasonable option nowadays? Well, again, it might be. I don't interpret the data as supporting that point of view because at the fifth year, I think people who have been on AIs have a lower risk of recurrence, and now we know death, than people who have been on tamoxifen for five years. But we don't have a way of directly comparing the results of the MA-17 with 10 years of therapy against the five years of therapy that the other strategies lead to. And I guess the other thing is the whole issue, what is the optimal long-term strategy, or just even in the first five years, and we're waiting on the big study. I've got to ask you whether you want to take a shot at predicting what the best arm of the big study is going to be. I'll do it if you do it. My prediction is the five years of letrozole. I predict two to three years of letrozole followed by tamoxifen. Okay. We'll see. Yeah. Okay, we'll bet a cup of coffee on that. 
All right. Let's oh, I want a mocha cappuccino <laughs> deluxe. I mean, you know, this is not just a cup of Greek coffee at a diner. <laughs> okay, let's take a look at a premenopausal case. Actually, our trends here are kind of interesting in terms of things seem to be changing a little bit. Now, we created this case to be 35 years old with three positive nodes, ERPR positive, HER2 negative. And over the last three years, we actually saw a little bit of a shift which is a movement away from using tamoxifen alone for five years and then no further treatment, and an increase, particularly in the investigators, in the use of tamoxifen and ovarian suppression. Any thoughts about that? Yeah, I don't know what drives that shift. I don't think that we have direct evidence that says that we know what to do for these patients beyond five years of tamoxifen. What was your answer to this case, or what would you... I can tell you, it's, for me, it's five years of tamoxifen, and as you know, I mean, our purpose here isn't to talk about the clinical trial enrollment, but this is exactly who I try to put on the soft trial. That's kind of the most important of the studies, in a way, because it presumes nothing. That's a trial where a menstruating woman or a woman with functioning ovaries and an ER-positive breast cancer gets the five years of tamoxifen that I would call standard, or ovarian ablation added to that, or ovarian ablation with exemestane replacing the tamoxifen. And, you know, just make the point, and this is the one I make with patients all the time, while doctors may have biases, the existence of this trial speaks to the fact that nobody really knows the answer. It would be unethical, unethical, to conduct that trial with five years of tamoxifen if the answer to this question was no. One of the options that I thought was interesting that about a quarter of the investigators and the practicing docs picked was saying that they wanted, quote, use tamoxifen for five years and then switch to an AI. The problem is really in the details because you can be amenorrheic for years on tamoxifen with functioning ovaries. The definition of menopause is pretty tough to nail down, as you know. And as Hal Burston and colleagues, including myself, have reported in one series, and I think Dan Hayes in another, amenorrhea on tamoxifen and a switch to AI does not mean that you are really menopausal. Some of those people menstruate months or years after the switch. What about monitoring FSHLH and estradiol? Is that a way to protect against getting burned in this scenario? Well, I guess to some degree. I'm less worried, actually, in this case, because if you've had the five years of tamoxifen, you have had, actually, what I would call standard therapy. If you're amenorrheic at that point and your estradiol is low and you go on the AI and monitor it, okay, if the estradiol starts to creep up or pop up and you have to stop, you haven't lost a whole lot as far as I could tell because you already got your package of therapy. This is gravy. Let's talk a little bit about the issue of extended adjuvant therapy that really has been fascinating to watch over the last few years. And we can start with question 30, the 65-year-old woman who originally has three positive nodes, gets five years of tamoxifen, and completed that a year ago. And the question is, one year after having completed tamoxifen, would you start an AI? And what you see is, you know, almost all the investigators would, and the people in practice. But one interesting thing is that there's more use of anastrozole in this situation in practice. What are your thoughts about this case and the responses? Well, I think they're relatively consistent. The way that I look at it is to just look at the use no further therapy. And there, most of the clinical investigators actually now would use further therapy. And there's a bit of a lag, I guess, in the practicing oncologists. They're at 17 versus 2% for the last year, right? Right. Yeah, you're right. right. So that's one thing. I think, on the other hand, the practitioners are doing what the clinical investigators frequently say, 
which is that they're admitting to themselves that there's probably not a whole lot of functional difference in the AIs. And, you know, I don't know what basis they choose to use what they do. I think many of us as clinical investigators defend ourselves, if you will, by using the drug that was specifically tested in that setting. And that's why we are all biased towards letrozole. But I can't imagine with what we know right now that it really matters. Yeah, it's interesting. We hear this mantra about, well, the trials are done with this drug, the trials are done with that drug. But I guess there's also an issue of, you know, what people are comfortable utilizing. And since, I guess, the data first came out with an astrazolin attack, and that is, in the upfront situation, a very common choice that they just use it when they use an AI. It may just be easier. Right. And now, you go to the next case, it's the same original tumor, except now, instead of being one year since the anatomoxin, it's three years. And you still see a very high fraction of investigators, almost 70%, saying they'd start an AI three years later, but a lot fewer docs in practice doing that. How do you approach this issue of how long they've been off tamoxifen? I don't know, you know, of course, why there's this disparity, but I think it may involve multi-step extrapolation. And what I mean is we have harped for the last few years on this natural history of ER-positive breast cancer. And we actually referred to it a moment ago, you and I, which is that there's a long sort of chronic relatively steady risk of recurrence with ER-positive disease. That's one bullet point, right? Right. The second bullet point is one way to pull together all of the three types of AI trials so far, and I think you've heard me say this certainly, is whenever you invoke the AI, you seem to nudge the risk of recurrence down from that point forward. That's true late with MA17, it's true in the middle with the switching trials, and it's true up front, right? Right. And so you start to convince yourself that it's reasonable to nudge down the risk of recurrence with the AI if the risk is sufficient to warrant therapy and that the lag between treatment times, you know, from the end of tamoxifen doesn't matter. And I often draw in one other parallel. It sounds like it's from left field, but it's really not. And that is the P1 and then the P2 trials. Look at P1. This is a trial of tamoxifen for ER-positive breast cancer. That's not how it's spun, but that's what it is. It's treating sub-ROSA, ER-positive breast cancers. But there's no landmark event that brings you in. You don't get a diagnosis and go on P1, right? You just come in because you're 35 and your doctor thinks you have risk, or you're 45 or you're 60, whatever it is. And yet, the lesson of P1 is, from the moment that tamoxifen is given to those patients, the hazard, the risk is diminished. So it suggests that if there's risk, risk may be adjusted with effective therapy. And I pull all that together to say, I can understand why in a high-risk patient at three years, you'd say, I've got safety data for the AI, I have this notion of long chronic risk, and I have this ability to hammer down on that risk if the patient's willing. You know, one thing about this delayed AI thing that's kind of interesting is you see a really rapid bump in the investigators that occurred between 2005 and 2006. And I'm assuming that the big reason for that was Goss's presentation in December of 05 at San Antonio. Although it's interesting, you don't see that same kind of bump that occurred in clinical practice. Would that be your take? I agree with you. It is interesting. In the next case, we get into the issue of optimal duration of aromatase inhibitors. Of course, that's being looked at in clinical trials, particularly the NSABP study. But we consider two women, one age 61 and one age 81, who both are now completing their fifth year of anastrozole for a node-positive tumor. And they've tolerated the aromatase inhibitor fine without major difficulties. 
And the question is, how do you approach the question, assuming the patient's not eligible for the study or can't be on the study, of whether to continue or not? And what we see here is actually that we're starting to see people sort of bring up the issue of whether or not the agent should be continued. We have about a quarter of people right now actually go ahead and recommend it. What are your thoughts and how did you answer it? I said that I would continue, but I think it's important for me to stipulate that the evidence right now is not on my side. And this is really one of those places where I'm extrapolating and pulling from several places. The first is, again, the long natural history of breast cancer. And the fact is that at least with tamoxifen, there are more recurrences after the first five years than in the first five years. So that motivates me to think about doing something that's longer lasting. Two, we have this evidence that I keep referring to that says that you can change natural history of breast cancer late in the game if you have active therapy. So that's the second thing. The third thing is that the choice of five years of therapy for both the upfront studies and the switching studies is completely arbitrary. It was driven by the toxicity and risk profile established by tamoxifen. It was not driven by some inherent understanding of breast cancer biology and what the right duration of therapy is. So we have to admit that while we picked five years, we didn't do it based on some scientific rationale. So finally, most patients who have intolerance or toxicity from the AIs have that problem in the first few years. Now, that doesn't mean that I won't have a rude awakening later, that people that take AIs for a very long period of time end up with some unexpected long-term toxicities, but we don't have evidence of that just yet. Finally, as you know, we are re-randomizing in MA17R patients who have finished five years of an AI to stay on them for a second five years or not, and I certainly am randomizing myself, any patient who can, and you know they've recently broadened the eligibility criteria so that it's no longer limited only to the previous participants in MA17. It's now available to patients who've had five years of AI, whether or not they were on the study. So all of that says to me that for a high-risk patient who is concerned about lowering her risk of recurrence and who has tolerated AI and is not coming in with complaints, either subjective or objective related to it, I have a long talk with them, explain what I don't know, and tell them that I would be comfortable with them remaining on the drug as long as they wish. Yeah, and I guess it, when you ask these surveys, it's always tricky how to you know word the question. But it looks like about a quarter of both the docs in practice as well as the investigator would just go ahead and I'm sure everybody's going to say, well, we don't really know. But a quarter maybe recommend, a quarter bring it up as an option, and maybe you're willing to do it if the patient wants to do it. But it's interesting that when you increase the age up to 81 years old, you still have a significant fraction of docs, not that many fewer actually, who would offer continuation or maybe recommend it to an older patient. Yeah, at the risk of splitting a very fine hair, I won't say that I recommend it, but I will say that I encourage it. I bring it up, lay it all out, and I tell them that this is what I would do if I were in that position. Age is an issue because of the competing causes of more morbidity and mortality, and I think having a new breast cancer in the opposite breast, having a recurrence and the attendant workup and evaluation is worth avoiding even if survival is not being improved. And so for a non-toxic, well-tolerated therapy, I would tend to leave the 81-year-old and the 61-year-old on it if they're both relatively healthy. Now, if the 81-year-old is sick with five other things and you know is having blood pressure problems and diabetes out of control and several MIs, I mean, no, I won't push them to stay on the drug. 
I have to ask you one other question, which is, I asked you before about predicting the big study. I want you to predict the soft study, and I'll do it too. I think the soft study will be positive for the AI and the uh, ovarian ablation. I do too, and I'll bet you a lot of people think that. But, well, wait, we've been fooled before. Hey, I thought transplant was going to work too. But that's the humbling point. It's very interesting because I had the discussion yesterday with a 40-year-old patient about the soft trial, and she wants to go on the study and is about to. Nevertheless... She kept asking me what I thought the best arm was. And I tried to explain that as a clinical investigator, when you really think about it, if you had a belief about the best arm, you would be challenging ethics with regard to randomization, even if you're wrong in your belief. All right, let's go on and talk a little bit about adjuvant chemotherapy. I'm curious what your thoughts are about Q5758, which basically says that all the investigators have used Ocotype, and you can see how this evolved over the last couple of years, but also that now there's been a big shift in clinical practice, and both groups have had significant experience with it. Again, any thoughts about how this has sort of rolled out over the last few years? I'm actually a little bit surprised that there seems to be, again, with all the statistical caveats, a more rapid pickup in the clinical investigator world. I mean, it's virtually 100% who have used it. And to this day, it's not 100% have used it in the practicing oncologist side. It's about two-thirds or three-quarters at this point. Right. And that surprises me a little bit. The Taylor RX trial, which, as you know, is predicated on getting the test, is accruing very, very well, and again, broadly in the community. So I wonder if you did the survey in early 08, if it's not going to basically come out of wash between practitioners and clinicians, because I think a lot of people will be using it by then. And I mean, traditionally, this is always what we see. I can remember when you guys presented the dose-dense date, I think it was in 2002, San Antonio. Initially, I think over the first year, I don't think more than about a third of oncologists were using that regularly. So it seems like it takes time for everybody to kind of get on board. Although, of course, in that case, we still have some discussion about it. Well, but here I would actually speak in the opposite direction. I'm surprised a little bit because In the clinical investigator world, there's a pretty deep understanding of the limitations of the oncotype data, how it was generated, what the data sets really mean, and what the limits are on interpreting it. And so it's interesting to me that despite a lot of lip service paid to that, it's broadly used. Yes, I've noticed that too. You know, you were talking about the Taylor RX study, and we asked people one of our favorite questions, if you had breast cancer, you yourself were the patient and you had a two-centimeter ER-positive node-negative tumor with an intermediate oncotype score, would you be comfortable being in the Taylor Arc study and being randomized to chemo versus not? And, I mean, I can tell you, I don't know if I'd be comfortable with that, but most people are, although a significant fraction, you know, 20 to 30 percent of both the docs and practice and investigators say they themselves would not be comfortable with that. Any thoughts? You know, that's actually a little saddening to me because the trial was written specifically to make sure that we were randomizing those patients where we admit that we don't know the answer. So either we did it and it was our best guess then and the world has changed a little bit, or we didn't adequately survey people to understand really what their feelings were. Could you estimate in your own practice roughly how often you're using the oncotype in your node-negative ER-positive patients? Do you send it in all of them or just the ones that are on the fence? So we use it in a couple of situations. One, the patient where our team thinks that they should get treated, but the patient is reluctant and we're looking for a little more ammo. Two, we use it in the small tumors where, by guidelines, we typically might not recommend chemotherapy and we want to make sure we're not missing somebody. 
so how seven, small? eight, nine millimeters and intermediate grade. And if the oncotype comes back 30, we're going to turn around and feel pretty sure that we ought to offer that patient chemo, even though official guidelines might have been soft on that point. I don't know the numbers. I can't give you the percentages. Any comments about this newer assay, the Mamaprint assay and the Mindec trial that's coming out of Europe looking at that? And you can see that all the investigators know about it, but only about half of the docs in practice have heard of it. Yeah, well, I mean, certainly we're supportive. I'm supportive of the trial. The Mindec technology is at present of limited meaning for American and docs because, as you know, it requires fresh frozen material. And while that is in a research environment not such a difficult thing to have happen, there are a series of logistical challenges to that in the U.S. And I'll run through them because I think it's important to understand. One, most breast cancer is not treated at research centers. Two, most hospitals don't bank fresh frozen material, so don't have an infrastructure in place to freeze it and save it. Three, if you want to get around that, you essentially need to send the specimen off at the time of surgery, and you will later discover, for example, in a node-positive patient or some other groups of patients that you didn't want to do the test, so you have to have a way to recall it. Four, as I understand this, some pathologists are reluctant to send chunks of tissue away before they have a final and complete diagnosis because they have some medical legal concerns, and a tiny bit of cancer will be lost in the case of fresh frozen material that's carved out at that initial diagnosis. And don't forget that while we do that as a research tool, most databases or data banks that are built with fresh frozen material tend to be biased towards larger tumors and they're in-house so the specimen still exists for the pathologist to get to it if there was a medical legal concern. So there's a whole lot of logistical challenge in the U.S. system to the broad use of that test right now. Well, let's finish up on the issue of adjuvant chemotherapy by focusing on choice of chemotherapy in smaller node-negative, HER2-negative tumors. And basically what we see is, first of all, the use of straightforward AC has dropped down in investigators, and there's been a switch there towards some use of dose-dense AC, I guess coming out of the CALGB trial that uses that, and a little bit more use of the TC, docetaxel cyclophosphamide, regimen and now you know 40 percent of the investigators saying that's what they would use in these patients so in terms of the docs in practice kind of a similar trend maybe not quite as much increase in terms of dose dense ac and tc but can you talk about these data these trends and you know what you do in this situation well i think it's important to start with a fact which is that ac has never beaten cmf in a randomized trial. And increasingly, both like the Genari meta-analysis that was shown or pooled analysis that was shown at San Antonio and other data as well, increasingly points to HER2 as the selector of anthracycline benefit. Now, I know the overview says that there's an overall benefit for anthracycline-based regimens, and I don't dispute that at all, but it's conceivable that a lot of that benefit is being driven by the HER2 subset with real neutrality outside of the HER2 subset. So I think for those reasons and the increased recognition of the long-term cardiac toxicity risks of anthracyclines and the long-term risks of acute leukemia and MDS, that there is motivation to look beyond AC. That is to say more succinctly, we want more effective regimens than CMF and also we want regimens with less acute and chronic toxicity. So I think that's the background for the drift away from AC in whatever direction we go. I know in the past you have told me that if you're going to use something other than dose-dense AC paclitaxel, it's going to be CMF. Is that Mm -hmm. still the case? 
Exactly, because for the patients where an anthracycline makes a difference, we actually have pretty good evidence that the taxane also makes a difference. I was curious about this bump up that we're seeing in the use of TC. And we actually have asked this question now a couple years in a row to see, you know, this came out December 2005 when Steve Jones presented the TC data showing an advantage in disease-free survival and trend in survival and what they thought was better tolerability. And that message seems to have gotten out to the investigators, or at least they buy into it, because most of them say that they think that TC is either somewhat or significantly more efficacious. You see kind of a similar trend, but not quite as strong a number as within the practicing oncologist. And then same thing when we ask about safety and tolerability, you find a significant fraction of the investigators, maybe half, think that TC is more tolerable. And same thing with the docs in practice. And yet, it hasn't sort of taken over for AC, although it seems like it's increasing pretty rapidly. Again, any thoughts on how would you answer those questions? Well, first of all, I think that Steve's updated presentation last year where TC was better than AC for disease-free survival is a convincing argument that A, TC is certainly not worse than AC, probably is better, and B, because it pretty much gets rid of the anthracycline toxicity in terms of cardiac toxicity, it might well be the preferred regimen. And all else being equal, I would be on that camp myself. There are a couple of wrinkles, though, at least, or nuances that I think we have to consider. The first one is it remains conceivable that in HER2-positive breast cancer that you would want the anthracycline. And that's not easily addressed in the trial. The second is that clinicians who use TC, I think, pretty consistently point out that although it is chronically less toxic because of the cardiac risk and probably has less leukemia risk, although we don't know that, acutely it's a fairly tough regimen. I mean, you shouldn't presume that it's easy as AC. The truth is that clinicians using it, I think, pretty consistently find it to be a day-by-day, fairly rigorous treatment for patients and maybe more rigorous even than AC. Apart from the cardiac and leukemia risks, you know, the toxicity profiles aren't so different, but the rate of neutropenic fever is actually higher for TC than for AC, and that's a fact that we take into account. And then the third issue I just point out again is that the uncertainty about scheduling and dose density, and we do not have direct evidence that Q2 AC is better than Q3. We just don't, and we have to admit that. But I think some people suspect that that's the case, and it gives you a nice short regimen. So are you comfortable at this point still with CMF, or are you thinking about using TC? Well, we're using TC a bit in our practice, but it's important to emphasize that for the patients where we use CMF, we are talking about low-risk breast cancer, often ER positive, almost always node negative, almost always small tumors. And it's pretty difficult to believe that there's going to be a detectable difference in outcome for that sub-subset. Let me spin it one more way for you. Imagine I said to you that I want to conduct a randomized trial to compare TC against any regimen. Pick what it is. But I'm going to limit it to sub-centimeter breast cancer. It would have to be a gigantic trial, 10,000 patients to see a difference. Right. Let's talk a little bit about adjuvant therapy of patients with HER2-positive tumors. And on questions 62 to 65, we ask these docs about, I think, probably the most discussed or controversial issue, which is the patient with a smaller node-negative tumor. And you can see that when the tumor is 1 to 2 centimeters, are pretty much agreement that regardless of the ER status that the patient ought to receive chemotherapy and trastuzumab. But then when the tumor goes below 
sonometer, you see a lot of variation in whether people think it's appropriate or not appropriate, and it gets even more questionable when the tumor becomes ER positive. What are your thoughts about these data, and how do you approach it? Well, first of all, I think these data reflect the state of knowledge, which is that we have accrued patients with tumors above a centimeter, in some cases above two when they're ER positive, depending on the specific trastuzumab trial. So I think these data are pretty consistent with what we know. Below a centimeter, we're right back into this problem of, is it biology or anatomy that's going to drive the day? And what I mean is, for sub-centimeter breast cancers, historically, it is the anatomic distinction, tumors below a centimeter. Therefore, tumors have low risk. Therefore, adjuvant therapy doesn't matter much, and we don't recommend it. But if biology is going to drive it, then you would want to target HER2 almost independent of size in invasive breast cancer. And I think it's pretty important that we figure out what the real risk in that setting is. And I would just point out to everybody that the Dana-Farber is running a non-randomized registration trial for subcentimeter or very small node-negative breast cancers where they're giving them chemo and trastuzumab just to get a sense of the event rate and to see whether it's even possible someday to do a trial in that group of patients. You know, if they end up with a really, really low event rate with, let's say, paclitaxel and trastuzumab as sole therapy, it's probably going to tell us that this is not a ripe area for much research. Although that's going to take a while. Meanwhile, we have to make decisions. And I'm kind of curious what you say to patients who have tumors that are, you know, under a son- or around a sonometer, for example, that are HER2 positive. Well, yeah, I'm pretty liberal about it. Given all the data, the HERA data, which really shows the same point estimate for benefit in all node groups, and had a sizable number of node-negative patients, I basically recommend for any patient who makes a conventional criteria for chemo, which would be a centimeter or above or node positivity, I'll recommend full-on therapy with a standard anthracycline taxane and trastuzumab-containing regimen. And I was wondering, too, what you would tell people about their residual risk of recurrence if they only get chemotherapy or if they only get chemotherapy and hormone therapy that the tumor is ER positive. Again, sonometer, below a sonometer. What kind of residual risk is it that we're using the trastuzumab for? But it's so funny that you ask the question that way because I really think about it the opposite way. For me, the uncertainty is whether they need the chemo. Yeah, I guess you could look at it that way. How do you answer that question? Well, I don't know the exact numbers at the moment, but what I believe we know is that when we tack the trastuzumab on to the pre-existing regimen, we appear to knock off half the risk. So, you know, small tumor, but it's HER2 positive. Maybe it's got a 15% risk of recurrence, and maybe it'll be down at 10% if you've given good chemotherapy. And by putting the trastuzumab on, I may be knocking another 5% off based on the data we have. There are people who quote higher numbers in terms of, you know, 25 30% for this. Well, I'm talking here about the one-centimeter node-negative tumors, ER positive. Let's talk a little bit about the issue of selection of chemotherapy to be combined with trastuzumab. And, of course, in December 2006, Dennis Slayman presented the second presentation of the 006 BCIRG trial, and a result which seemed to show that the TCH was similar to AC followed by docetaxel trastuzumab. And you do see a bump, really, in clinical investigators mainly from 2% to 20% of people who say, this is generally what I'm going to be using when I use a chemotherapy regimen. Other than that, it seems like people are mainly sticking with the anthracycline taxanes. 
Although there's not an inconsequential amount of dose-dense AC paclitaxel slash trastuzumab, about a quarter of investigators and people in practice are utilizing that regimen, which, of course, you guys are using. What's your take on this whole issue of selection of chemotherapy? I don't think we have enough evidence to be dogmatic right now in any direction. The basic backbone for the clinical trials was the AC taxane backbone, and with Q3-week AC and weekly or Q3 taxane from E1199 globally, we have a pretty good sense that it doesn't matter a whole lot what you do. We clearly have evidence of this 50% approximately risk reduction when trastuzumab is added to virtually any regimen. Now, one of the issues that I think the TCH presentation brings up is the generic question, which is, does chemotherapy selection matter at all once you're in HER2-positive land and you're using trastuzumab? It may be that the trastuzumab has such a profound effect and such an overarching one that it no longer matters in a nuanced way which chemotherapy you pick. The data we have that says that anthracyclines matter, which I've alluded to before, is from a trastuzumab-naive population. And by the way, when Dan Hayes looked at paclitaxel in C9344, that as well was in a trastuzumab-naive population showing a HER2-associated benefit. So it's conceivable that all of this is about nothing and that once you're in the realm of trastuzumab-based therapy, that your narrow chemotherapy choice isn't so important. However, Dennis Lane would say it's very important in terms of cardiac safety. Well, I understand that. But there I think we have a lot of noise and not so much fact at the moment. And here again, I mean, you know, I don't want to be accused of self-dealing in a sense. And I do have the conflict of interest because dose-dense therapy has been our pet project for a long time, but I want to highlight something for you. One of the comments made is that 10% of patients have a decline in EF just from getting AC and then become no longer candidates for trastuzumab use. And you hear that all the time, right? Right. I don't know how much of that's real and how much of that's noise from multi-centers and lack of consistent technique in terms of the testing. Because in Chow Dang's study, which we have now submitted for publication, in 70 patients treated with dose-dense therapy with baseline EFs of 55% or greater as an eligibility criteria, we had zero dropouts during the AC. And that's because I think All the testing was done in a single center, maybe with a single reader, but it suggests that there may be more than just the real toxicity at work here for that dropout number. And if you factor that out of the equation, then your incidence of cardiac toxicity and your limitation on trastuzumab delivery goes down dramatically. That's one of the reasons we've become comfortable with trastuzumab, too. We only had one case of congestive heart failure among the 70 patients in this phase two trial and no cardiac deaths, and that's certainly below a place where you would predict that there's any elevated risk compared to the other regimens right now, and that's another reason we've become comfortable with this. But I'm concerned that there is a dearth of really good prospective data on the meaning and impact of these modest EF declines, and that we may be denying people trastuzumab for no good reason because of local laboratory testing variations. And of course, everyone will be quick to jump up and say, yeah, you're talking about 70 patients and events in terms of heart failure, you know, a few percent. Bottom line is, what would you say to a patient right now about getting an anthracycline taxane trastuzumab regimen, let's say dose-dense, in terms of what the risk is that they won't get to the trastuzumab or that they're going to have heart failure? Well, our data says that their risk that they won't get to the trastuzumab is zero. But 
I admit that that's relatively modest numbers, although it is sized specifically to eliminate an increase in risk compared to the conventional treatments. I have to point out that in the retrospective analysis of C9741, the cardiac event rate with dose-dense therapy was half of the Q3 scheduled event rate. So this inborn bias that everybody has that it must be more toxic is not supported by any data. And so I don't know the answer. And if 700 were the number instead of 70, I am confident that we'd see some more cardiac toxicity. It's important as well to remind folks that we did this trial in response to a request for the data when the randomized trials of trastuzumab could not be modified to accommodate those dense therapies. So this is the best way we could get at evidence. And for the ER negative subset in particular in the dose dense trial, the magnitude of the benefit in terms of three-year disease-free survival is quite similar to the magnitude of the benefit that you get when you add trastuzumab globally. It's in the double-digit range. So, I mean, I don't think that we should be so dismissive of the possibility that both schedule optimization and the biologic therapy matter for these patients. I just don't know. How do you, with that perspective, view TCH? Again, a patient's out in the community has had TCH recommended for a node-positive tumor, comes to you for a second opinion. Do you say, totally fine, it's okay, but it's not what I would use, or I don't really think you should take it? I have equipoise on this question right now. We have data that says that TCH beats ACT with docetaxel, and we have data that says ACTH pick your poison in terms of the taxane, beats ACT. We don't have direct data that shows any significant difference one way or the other for TCH versus the trastuzumab-containing regimens. I will say that we have a greater weight of evidence for the anthracycline-containing regimens, and at least at the first analysis, there was a suggestion that some of the patients might specifically benefit from the inclusion of the anthracycline, and I'm alluding, of course, to the TOPO2 testing, which is not in general use right now, but raises again the possibility that the omission of the anthracycline might be disadvantageous for some patients. That's the long story. The short story is TCH is a reasonable option, and it'll be even more reasonable when there's a peer-reviewed paper reporting it. Have you used that regimen yourself in the adjuvant setting? I have. And, you know, you would think, what about the patient who either has a history of cardiac disease or hypertension, older, somebody who just looks a little bit frail? Maybe I should ask you, what kind of patients have you used TCH in? Well, I've used TCH preoperatively in HER2-positive breast cancer in the past, and in the occasional patient who just doesn't want to get the anthracycline. It's funny because everybody asks the question, as you did, what about that patient with a cardiac toxicity or a limitation? But the truth is, when you're giving adjuvant therapy to try and cure early-stage breast cancer, it's the rare patient that I can even imagine with a significant enough cardiac dysfunction that would limit my adjuvant therapy choice and yet would not limit their lifespans sufficient to you know, make me not care so much about their adjuvant treatment. The place where I think it could be particularly useful is the woman with a second breast cancer who, let's say, got CAF eight years ago. Hmm, that's interesting. It's interesting, too, that it looks like the clinical use of TCH has increased or the experience with it has increased and in that at this point about 80% of the investigators like you have used it in this situation and now we're going up to almost 50% of the onks in practice. So it looks like people are starting to get their feet wet with this regimen. One thing about familiarity is, you know, it does some degree breed contempt. This is not a walk in the park, this regimen. There's significant acute toxicity with it. 
Another question relating to something we were talking about before, which is the use of trastuzumab without chemotherapy. And it's interesting that you see kind of a split that maybe around a third of docs say that using trastuzumab without chemotherapy is a reasonable non-protocol option. A third think it shouldn't be utilized, and about a third are kind of in between. And roughly you see that in both oncologists and investigators kind of showing a real disparity in how people view that option. What are your thoughts about utilizing that strategy in a non-protocol setting? I've done it once, and we don't have evidence for it, but we do have evidence in stage 4 breast cancer that trastuzumab is an active monotherapy. And I think in the occasional patient where you really have limited choices for whatever reason, it's reasonable. And I can describe a patient to you where I've done that. I have a patient who had a CVA when she got adjuvant chemotherapy several years before, quit, of course, went on hormone therapy, and while on adjuvant hormone therapy, developed a contralateral ERPR negative HER2 positive node positive breast cancer. And she flat out won't take chemotherapy. It's not in the cards for her. She's on monotherapy with trastuzumab. In the next part of the program, we visit Dr. Robert Carlson, who discussed the survey findings related to management of metastatic disease. To begin, we reviewed endocrine therapy and one of the most striking findings of the study, namely in the use of ovarian suppression with an LHRH agonist. Of great interest is that about a quarter of investigators and more than a third of practicing oncologists utilized every three-month depot formulations as opposed to monthly treatment. Dr. Carlson commented on this finding. The data is pretty clear that when we utilize the LHRH agonists on an every three-monthly basis, that there is breakthrough estrogen production by the ovary. The data is very convincing that monthly LHRH agonist treatment does adequately and continually suppress estrogen production. But the every three-monthly formulations don't do that. They suppress ovarian function well for a month or two, but then there is a breakthrough. This is once again one of those situations where the ovary is stronger than the testicle. In the treatment of prostate cancer, the three-monthly injections do appear to adequately suppress androgen production in the testicle, but not estrogen production in the ovary. And I guess where this gets particularly important is if the patient is also being treated with an aromatase inhibitor. This is a strategy, and I'd like you to update us on your work looking at this of doing ovarian suppression and aromatase inhibitor, but if you're not going to adequately suppress the ovaries, that's going to be a problem. That's going to be a major problem. The target for the aromatase inhibitors may actually be the intratumoral aromatase enzyme, and so it may not be fully necessary to suppress estrogen production in the ovary. But until we know that better, the target that we can measure easily is circulating estrogen. And if we use an aromatase inhibitor in a premenopausal woman with functioning ovaries, we're simply not going to adequately suppress estrogen production. So I do agree that if you're going to use an aromatase inhibitor in a woman who is functionally premenopausal, you've got to be certain to adequately suppress ovarian function. Now, that is a strategy that is being used right now in clinical practice, but it's also being studied. Can you update your trial looking at that strategy? Well, we have an abstract that has been submitted for ASCO 2007, updating our experience. The trial has accrued to all the patients. We have 32 women who are treated in a valuable And the short version is that the most recent update confirms our earlier preliminary data that was presented at San Antonio and does show about a 70 to 75% clinical benefit rate in premenopausal women with hormone receptor-positive metastatic breast cancer. 
The duration of response is actually quite good. We have one woman who is actually now five-plus years on treatment and has a durable, complete response. What specifically is the treatment? We're using Gisarolin on a monthly basis. 22 days after the initial injection with Gisarolin, we're adding an astrazole on a daily basis. And then we just continue that indefinitely, Gisarolin monthly and astrazole daily. And I know that you've looked at the degree of ovarian suppression with this regimen. What have you seen? We measured estradiol levels at baseline at one month, at three months, and at six months. And in selective patients, but not as specified by protocol, we did follow up estradiol levels subsequently. We see very rapid and near-complete ovarian estrogen production suppression at one month. It's maintained at three months, and it was maintained in all patients at six months except for one. We had one patient who did have breakthrough estrogen production at six months, but subsequent monitoring confirmed that the levels were later suppressed adequately. Now, as the king of the breast cancer evidence base and the head of the NCCN Breast Cancer Committee, do you address the issue of one month versus every three-month LHR agonists? We don't specify for any of the hormonal therapies uh, dose or schedule of delivery. And I think that in terms of practice patterns, this is probably the use of the LHRH agonist monthly versus every three monthly is probably the only place where there is substantial variation in dose and schedule. I guess the one other place where there might be would be the question of loading versus not with fulvestrant. But we don't address that specifically in our guideline. This would appear to be a little bit disturbing that so many people are using a regimen that really they shouldn't be using, it seems like. I agree. I think that this is a situation where there is a very substantial educational opportunity. We should be using the LHRH agonists in women on a monthly basis. Have you talked about addressing this specific issue in the committee? We haven't. Would you like to, to show them this data? <laughs> I mean, the amazing thing is the 24% in the investigators. You know, you look at the list of people that we've got. These are the top people in the country. Well, yeah, it is concerning. It is a real educational opportunity. And it may be that, I guess it was two or three years ago, the panel started specifying the dose and schedule of cytotoxic chemotherapy regimens that should be utilized. And this may be an example where that may be important in the hormonal therapies as well. Okay, we'll do our thing and try to get the message out through this piece, and maybe you all take a shot at it too. I think it would be helpful. I agree. Okay, let's talk a little bit about the choice of endocrine therapy that people are making in the first-line metastatic setting. And particularly, I'm curious about, in light of the most recent major trial looking at metastatic disease in this situation, the EFFECT trial that was presented in December at San Antonio, and our survey was done after that, so this isn't a post-EFFECT situation. And we present a situation that's pretty common, which is that a patient progresses while receiving an adjuvant AI, in this case, after four years of anastrozole. And we ask docs, in general, what are you going to be using at that point? And what we see is pretty much of a split between tamoxifen and fulvestrin and a little bit of exemestane, but in the practicing oncologist, a lot more use of fulvestrant than anything else in this situation. What's your take on the sort of treatment options in this situation? What do you think about these results? Well, I guess that one of the surprising parts of these results was the fact that practicing oncologists are not infrequently transitioning women from anastrozole to letrozole. And this is another situation where I think we may have an educational opportunity because there really is no data that I'm aware of that there are crossover responses from 
one of the non-steroidal aromatase inhibitors to the other. Just to be clear, what you're pointing out is the 12% of practicing docs in the 2007 survey who said they would do that. That's correct, that they would, after a woman progressed on anastrozole, would convert to letrozole. And the data that that's effective is non-existent, and I think biologically we would not expect there to be crossover responses. In terms of the others, the spread of treatment options that we see either the clinical investigator or the practicing oncologist selecting, I'm not surprised that we see a lot of differences of opinion and practice pattern there. There really is very little evidence that any one of the hormonal therapies is head and shoulders or maybe even subtly superior to the other in second-line therapy. One of the things that the recent trials have demonstrated, though, that is new is it used to be thought that the best predictor of a hormonal response to a new therapy would be a prior hormonal response. And with many of the new trials, with the crossover analyses that have been done, it looks like that a prior response to a hormonal maneuver is not really a prerequisite for a subsequent good, even sometimes durable, response to hormonal therapy. This situation really is the effect situation that Bill Gratishar reported at San Antonio. Can you summarize the bottom line that came out of that trial? So the bottom line that came out of that trial was that overall rates of response, overall time to progression were not different comparing treatment with exemestane versus fulvestrant. In the patients who did achieve a response, there was a suggestion that there might be some superiority in duration of response with fulvestrant, but the differences were really quite subtle. And as we would expect with these agents, both of the agents were very well tolerated. Now, in this situation of a patient progressing on a non-steroidal AI, you said you thought that the choices of tamoxifen, fulvestrin, or exemestane are roughly about the same, at least in terms of efficacy. How do you go about making the decision? Well, I talk with the individual woman about whether or not she prefers an oral agent or an agent where she gets an injection on a four-weekly basis. Some patients express a preference, many don't. And to some extent, it's also a choice of which toxicities the woman is most concerned about. If a woman has a history of osteoporosis or arthralgia-type syndrome previously, I'm going to be somewhat less hesitant to use a steroidal aromatase inhibitor. I might, in that situation, favor tamoxifen or fulvestrant. So those are the sorts of considerations. One of the other factors that I consider is my belief in terms of how compliant the woman is. There's a building body of data that suggests... I guess we shouldn't be surprised, but suggest that a number of women who walk out of our office with a prescription for even anti-cancer therapies simply don't take their medications on a regular basis. You know, it's really interesting. We've seen a bunch of reports come out suggesting noncompliance with long-term endocrine therapy over the last few years, and yet we've surveyed physicians, we've surveyed oncologists, we've surveyed nurses, we've even surveyed patients and said, do you think compliance is a problem in this situation? And the docs and nurses think it's not a problem, and the patients say, no, I take my medicine, and yet you have these studies that come out that say that doesn't seem to be the case. What do you think the truth is? Well, it's hard to know what's going on. Since that data started to emerge, one of the questions that I ask women when I see them every time when they're on endocrine therapy is, how often do you forget to take your medication? So it's sort of a non-judgmental approach, and the usual response I get is rarely or never, and that's pretty consistent. And yet, when you do surveys of the pharmacies in terms of how many second, third, fourth prescriptions get refilled of the aromatase inhibitors, it would suggest that many just simply don't get refilled. 
So I don't know if it's a tracking system, if the patients are finding alternative supplies of the aromatase inhibitors, for instance, from Canada or other places outside the U.S. that aren't tracked by those systems or exactly what. But I suspect that noncompliance is a much bigger problem than most of us believe. And getting back to this issue of the patient progressing on an adjuvant non-steroidal AI, which is going to be a lot of people or a lot of the relapses that occur, one of the choices that's made here of the three that were made and that we've talked about is tamoxifen. Now, we know that with fulvestrin and exemestane, we have data on responses after a non-steroidal, for example, the EFFECT trial. But do we actually have data on the response rate to tamoxifen after adjuvant AIs? Well, we have very limited data, and we have some anecdotal data. I think it's going to be very important for us to get prospective assessments of rates of response with tamoxifen. If the long-term estrogen deprivation model, such as Dr. Stanton has proposed, actually occurs in the patient, then one might predict that tamoxifen would be very effective because of its small estrogen effect, additive estrogen effect, in women who have been on an AI long-term and then have had progressive disease. Another sort of related question that we asked was, the issue of in a patient who's progressing on a non-steroidal AI, again, this type of situation, or maybe somebody already has metastatic disease on a non-steroidal, is it a reasonable option to keep the AI going and add in fulvestrin? And actually, most of the investigators think it shouldn't be an option. The docs in practice seem like they're a little bit more open to it, maybe about half of them who would consider that kind of strategy. Of course, that's being looked at in clinical trials. Do you think it's a reasonable non-protocol option? Well, I wouldn't consider it a reasonable non-protocol option, at least at the current time. We know that, in general, two hormonal maneuvers done at the same time, at least in postmenopausal women, don't appear to add dramatically to anti-tumor efficacy. I guess the two situations where that might not be the case would be in premenopausal women undergoing ovarian suppression plus an AI or ovarian suppression plus tamoxifen, where there may be a benefit to the dual hormonal maneuver. But in the postmenopausal women, the data that the dual hormonal maneuvers will be of value is pretty much non-existent. Now, there is the SWOG226 trial that will perhaps help to address this to some extent, and that's a randomized phase three trial that's looking at anastrozole versus anastrozole plus fulvestrant. And if that trial shows superiority of the dual hormonal maneuver, then adding fulvestrant in that situation would make a lot more sense. Okay, let's talk about another issue discussed when the effect was presented, which is the issue of the loading dose. Now, in the effect trial, they did use a loading dose. And in fact, we've been asking about this in these studies for the last few years. And there's been a progressive increase in the non-protocol use of loading dose of fulvestrant, with the investigators now almost more than three-quarters using the loading dose, and the oncologist about a half. What are your thoughts about this whole issue? Well, you know, the pharmacokinetic studies really provide very strong rationale for using a loading dose of fulvestrant. Without a loading dose, it takes several months to get to fully efficacious ER down-regulating doses of fulvestrant. So I'm a strong advocate of it. You know, it's one of those situations where I think if we had the pharmacokinetic data when the first-generation trials were done, we never would have used fulvestrant without a loading dose. It would have been the default in the clinical trials to start with. I think the real difficulty with the loading dose is because it's not part of the FDA label, it sometimes is difficult to get reimbursement for it. But whenever I can get reimbursement for it, I'm utilizing a loading dose strategy. 
Okay, I want to segue over while we're talking about therapy of metastatic disease in the patient who has an ER-positive tumor to the patient who has an ER-positive HER2-positive tumor, and specifically the issue of the tandem data that was presented initially in Europe in the fall and then at San Antonio by John Mackey in December. And we have a case in here that's kind of a tandem-type case So this case is a 60-year-old woman who was diagnosed three years previously with an ERPR HER2-positive, triple-positive breast cancer, and she receives AC followed by tamoxifen, which she's been on now for three years. And this is pre-adjuvant trastuzumab, so she hasn't had any anti-HER2 therapy. So now while on the tamoxifen, she presents with moderately symptomatic bone mets, no other sites of disease on staging. And what we saw with this is that by far the most common choice for this was the combination of endocrine therapy, mostly AIs, but endocrine therapy plus trastuzumab. Two-thirds of the investigators, more than half of the docs in practice, say they would use both. About a quarter of the investigators saying they would use endocrine therapy alone. I think that number would have been a lot higher six months or before the tandem data came out. And a similar, a little bit slightly smaller number, again, using endocrine therapy alone from private practice. Can you talk about how you would approach this situation, what the tandem trial showed, and whether that impacted the way you approach these patients? Sure. So the tandem trial was a prospective randomized trial. It looked at an astrazole alone versus an astrazole plus trastuzumab in women with ER-positive HER2 overexpressing metastatic breast cancer. And the short version of the results are that the combination of anastrozole plus trastuzumab had higher rates of response and a longer time to progression with no difference in overall survival at the current analysis. So that study is very reminiscent, and the results are very reminiscent of the single-agent versus combination chemotherapy studies that have been reported. The combination chemotherapy studies generally show higher rates of response, longer time to progression, no difference in overall survival or very small differences in overall survival, and greater toxicity. With the AIs plus trastuzumab, the toxicity experience is really quite modest with the combination therapy, and so differences in toxicity, I think, are much less of a concern to me in this context than with the cytotoxic agents. But I think without a survival difference, without randomized trials that really look at sequential hormonal therapy followed by trastuzumab or trastuzumab followed by hormonal therapy versus the combination, it's really hard to be dogmatic in terms of which strategy is preferred. In a woman, though, like this, who's at least moderately symptomatic, I think getting a good response with more confidence is important. And this is a woman where I personally, my practice pattern would be typically to use an AI in combination with trastuzumab. And I do that again because the additive toxicity for most women is usually quite minimal. Have you been doing that for a while? I've been doing that for a while. Because I found, I don't think that's that common in investigators. I think maybe the more symptomatic the patient is, perhaps. But my sense was that people were, granted, the toxicity is not worse, but the patient has to come in for the office to an intravenous injection. Some people talked about separating out what was working. I think that before tan, a lot of people would use endocrine therapy alone. And it's kind of interesting that you see so much of this going on right now. What about chemotherapy? How do you approach the same situation of the patient, let's say it was completely asymptomatic, still use both? 
Well, I think if the patient is asymptomatic, then the rationale is much less compelling for using combination therapy. And in that situation, I would typically start with a hormonal agent alone and hold the trastuzumab for use down the road, most likely in combination with cytotoxic therapy. You know, another thing I've heard people talk about, we don't see it reflected that much in this survey, but I've heard investigators talk about is the issue of the question of survival advantage and the concept of starting chemotherapy and trastuzumab up front with the thought that we know that it's sort of an interesting kind of logic that there was a survival benefit seen in the chemo plus or minus trastuzumab studies and that, quote, we might lose that opportunity if we wait too far down the line. And here we see only about 10% of people taking that strategy. Although interestingly, in practice, about 11% of the docs use endocrine therapy, chemotherapy, and trastuzumab altogether. What about chemotherapy? Well, I would tend to delay chemotherapy in this situation. The studies looking at trastuzumab that show a survival benefit are studies that have included primarily hormone-responsive disease only after the application of hormonal therapy. So the woman with an ERPR-positive breast cancer who had not received hormonal therapy was excluded from most of those studies. So the survival advantage that was seen, you could argue, was seen despite the fact that the women with hormone-responsive disease had initially been treated with a single-agent hormone, or presumably a sequence of single-agent hormones. So I would not use chemotherapy early on, especially in the asymptomatic woman with a hormone-responsive tumor. I think that in this context, the more difficult issue is whether or not the use of single-agent trastuzumab would be reasonable. Without endocrine therapy? Without endocrine therapy. Hmm. Now, I would typically, in such a woman, use endocrine therapy first, but Chuck Vogel has data and Melody Coblay have data looking at single-agent trastuzumab with rates of response that are not too bad, and again, associated with really minimal toxicity. Okay, I'd like to turn to the issue of chemotherapy and metastatic disease. And this is a 60-year-old woman who presents with metastatic triple negative breast cancer. She has bone and liver mets, and she's mildly symptomatic. And we wanted to sort of kind of take away the cost and reimbursement issues first and just look at the actual risks and benefits of various choices, and specifically taxanes with the data that's come out now recently in terms of particularly NAB-Paclitaxel that was presented by Bill Gratishar, who's a pretty busy guy there at San Antonio, comparing it to docetaxel. And so we asked the docs, assuming that cost and reimbursement's not an issue and you've decided you want to use a taxane for this woman, which one would you most likely recommend? And it's kind of a spectrum here, but the most common choice is NAPACLITAXEL. And the investigators, more than half of them would choose it, although a substantial number still use paclitaxel. And in the docs in practice, more of a split between docetaxel and NAPACLITAXEL. What's your take on the risk-benefit issues here? Well, certainly the randomized data suggests that NAPACLITAXEL, in comparison with paclitaxel in Phase three trials and in comparison with docetaxel in Phase two trials, that the nabpaclitaxel is certainly acceptably toxic and probably overall less toxic, far fewer allergic infusion reactions, probably a little bit more neuropathy with the nabpaclitaxel. But overall, I think the patient experience is probably a little bit more favorable with nabpaclitaxel. You know, the toxicity we don't talk about is time in the infusion center. The nabpaclitaxel can be much more rapidly infused and is not associated with the toxicities of the pre-medications that are associated with 
docetaxel and paclitaxel. So I think that overall toxicity experience with NAB paclitaxel is probably a little bit more favorable. I have seen anecdotally allergic reactions with NAB paclitaxel, but it's interesting they tend not to be infusion reactions, they tend to be delayed hypersensitivity reactions. And at least one was severe enough that required hospitalization. So NAB paclitaxel is not a free ride in terms of hypersensitivity, but it does not require the premedications because the hypersensitivity reactions that occur are delayed, they're not immediate. How do you approach the choice of taxanes right now in your own practice? I typically talk with the patient, again, about what her goals are, what her issues are in terms of toxicity. I have used a modest amount of first-line NAB paclitaxel. One of the factors that sometimes influences my thinking, though, is whether I'm going to give bevacizumab in combination with the taxane. And when I give bevacizumab in combination with the taxane, I'm much more likely to use paclitaxel than NAB paclitaxel. I think if I'm planning on using a single-agent taxane in the metastatic setting, I'm somewhat more prone to use NAB paclitaxel at the current time. And why, when you're using Bev, are you more likely to use paclitaxel? Because that's where the data came from? Well, there are several reasons. One is that that's where the data came from. And when you're using a clinical trial to justify using a treatment, you should, I think, in general, try to use the treatment as closely as you can to the way it was used in a clinical trial. You know, the other reason is that we don't have a full understanding of how bevacizumab increases rates of response. We do know that as a single agent, bevacizumab is associated with very low rates of response. When it's given in combination, at least with paclitaxel, it seems to have relatively high rates of response. One of the theories for that is that the bevacizumab increases vascular permeability, and it may be that that allows the more efficient diffusion of paclitaxel to the tumor itself. And if that's the case, then the mechanism or method that the drug actually gets to the tumor may be positively impacted by bevacizumab. Now, we know that NAB-paclitaxel, the whole handling of NAB-paclitaxel getting to the tumor is different. And if that difference is really true, correct, and if the primary effect of bevacizumab is vascular permeability, then using bevacizumab in combination with NAB-paclitaxel may actually not be an effective strategy. You talked about neuropathy, and it's been stated that perhaps when neuropathy does occur, it goes away quicker with the NAB than with the regular paclitaxel. Do you think that's a reality? I think that it's really hard to tell in the clinic. The neuropathies with the taxanes in general improve, and they in general start to improve pretty quickly after the taxanes are stopped. There's a small enough difference in rate of improvement that at least with the number of patients that I'm going to see in the clinic at any given time, I'm not sure that I can tell the difference. Now, another question I want to ask you about relates to the issue of pre-medications with taxanes. And this is sort of generated because I happen to be talking to a doc in practice, and I don't know what made me ask, do you use Decadron when you use Abraxane? And the doc said yes. And I was like, whoa, that's interesting. So we asked basically, and a patient is going to receive any of these three taxanes in a weekly or Q3 week interval, whether or not pre-medications would be used specifically with antihistamines and dexamethasone. And of course, with paclitaxel, virtually all the docs, or certainly over 90%, would use both. But what was interesting is that when we go down to NAB paclitaxel, 30% of the docs in practice are using Decadron. Any thoughts? 
The experience in the clinical trials is that the use of pre-medication to avoid allergic reactions is not necessary with nabpaclitaxel. Those studies actually specifically utilized, the randomized trials utilized pre-medication with docetaxel, paclitaxel, and specifically did not with nabpaclitaxel. And despite that, they saw far fewer allergic reactions with the nabpaclitaxel. So, you know, supposedly one of the advantages of the nabpaclitaxel, and I think it is an advantage of the nabpaclitaxel, is that you don't require the pre-medication, you don't experience the toxicities associated with dexamethasone, you don't experience the sedation that's associated with the antihistamines. Do you think you can tell a difference in quality of life or what patients are telling you when you skip the decadron? I mean, do you ask them about insomnia and agitation and those other problems? Do you think it makes a significant difference to the quality of life? I think it does. I think it does. Certainly, patients who are given dexamethasone for either anti-emesis or for avoidance of allergic reactions certainly do complain about insomnia, the jitters, that makes the management of the diabetic patient, especially the borderline diabetic patient, much more difficult. So I think avoiding steroids is a good goal. The other thing, too, and this you know, kind of leads into the issue of cost and reimbursement, because clearly that is an issue in choosing taxanes, particularly NAB-Paclitaxel. And we asked docs here if the cost and reimbursement were the same for NAB as it is for Paclitaxel, would you be using Paclitaxel? 80% of the investigators say no, and two-thirds of the docs in practice say no. So that kind of clearly says sort of what the issue is in terms of choice. I agree. I think that for many of these newer therapies, that cost is a very big issue. It's a big issue for the individual physician. It's a big issue for the insurance carriers. I think it's even a bigger issue for us nationally in terms of how we are as a society going to handle the provision of these extraordinarily expensive medications. I think it also gets into the issue of patient education. And if a doc is going to use or change the therapy based on the fact that, well, maybe it might be better for this patient, but it's not good for our country's economy or whatever, maybe they need to let the patient know that they're doing that. I think if I were a patient, I knew there was a therapy that had some advantages and was being not used for that reason. I'd want to know about it, I think. Well, I think that's a tough one, you know, and some of that is cultural. The American culture is a very individualistic culture. Everyone from themselves, a very capitalistic view of the world, as opposed to other societies and cultures where the society as a whole is really the end point. I do think we're going to have to come to grips with this, and it's going to have to mean, I think, ultimately, that we take a more societal perspective on healthcare costs and healthcare delivery as opposed to trying to truly individualize medicine and have unlimited free choice in terms of access to therapies and diagnostics. What's your approach to making that decision? So I have used a fair amount of bevacizumab. When I use it, I use it almost exclusively, not exclusively, but almost exclusively as a first-line therapy off of protocol. We are a performance site in the RIBBON-2 trial that's looking at the use of chemotherapy of physician's choice with or without bevacizumab. That study, I think, is going to really help us answer the question, both of the issue of capecitabine plus or minus bevacizumab, but also other chemotherapies plus or minus bevacizumab in the second-line setting. How do you make the decision between various options in the first-line metastatic setting in terms of chemotherapy? What are the factors that you consider? Well, there are a number of factors. One is how recent the adjuvant therapy has been, if there has been adjuvant therapy, and what that therapy was to perhaps get a handle on therapies that we could predict the tumor is likely to be resistant to. 
I look at comorbidities to understand, you know, do they have an underlying neuropathy? Are they diabetic? Do they have cardiovascular disease? What's their overall health status? I look at age. How much do I think a woman's going to be able to handle an aggressive therapy? And then I involve the patient. And typically in a woman with newly metastatic breast cancer that's going to get chemotherapy, I'll provide them with two or three different options hopefully including a clinical trial if one is available. What about the use of combination chemotherapy with bevacizumab, particularly the issue of a taxane, for example, plus capecitabine? I have not used bevacizumab in the context of combination chemotherapy to date. I think that the toxicity experience with bevacizumab is, for the most part, quite acceptable. You do have to be careful. You have to monitor blood pressure. You have to monitor proteinuria and so forth to be sure you're not going to get into trouble. But I think the usual toxicity experience, I think, is quite favorable. So I would expect that it would be an agent that you could combine with combination chemotherapy without untoward toxicity. Another question we asked relates to the continuation of bevacizumab. This kind of gets back to the old Herceptin controversy. You have a patient with metastatic disease who's had a great response to chemotherapy A plus bevacizumab. Now they're progressing. What about continuing the bevacizumab and adding in a different chemotherapy? So, you know, people seem to be kind of split on that. About half the investigators think that shouldn't be done, although about a quarter think that it could be or that they would do that. And the docs in practice are a little bit more favorably inclined to continue bevacizumab and switch to another chemotherapy, and half of them would do that in that type of situation. What are your thoughts about that? Of course, that's something we don't really have any data on at this point. What do you think about doing it in a non-protocol setting? Well, in the non-protocol setting, I'm not continuing bevacizumab after progression of disease while on a bevacizumab-containing regimen. But I really don't think we know the answer. Well, I know we don't know the answer to the optimal duration of bevacizumab and whether we would get continued repeated synergy with bevacizumab. I do think it's interesting that the typical practice pattern, at least on the West Coast, is to continue trastuzumab after progression. But I think the general pattern is not to continue bevacizumab after progression. I hope that we learn from the trastuzumab experience and that we quickly initiate clinical trials that will help us definitively answer the duration question with bevacizumab. This concludes our program. Special thanks to Drs. Huddis and Carlson, and thank you for listening. This is Dr. Neil Love for Patterns of Care.